good to have a code. I believe I said hello to those online. I acknowledge them. I don't know where they are. Want to see them sometime in the flesh. But some of them are not in this state, so we just welcome you to our service. I always have to make a comment on the song set. That song set really just captured my sermon. You know, we, 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 we sang, one, one song in particular caught my attention. It's the old one. <laughs> the one that Jeremy said he was not too familiar with. Bring forth the kingdom. We sang, we are the salt of the earth. We are a light on a hill. We are a seed of the word. We are pilgrim people. We are anointed people. And then the refrain, bring forth the kingdom of mercy. Bring forth the kingdom of peace. Bring forth the kingdom of justice. Bring forth the city of God. And so my sermon this morning, the title is, the kingdom. You know, my text I mentioned earlier consists of about 30 verses. It's really difficult to name and print them and have them available for you for your easy references, I always say. But they'll be there. I'll annotate them as I give the sermon. And there is no outline. I may have mentioned this already, but I, my mind is not always with me. But when you have a three to five point sermon, you need an outline that thing to help you focus and help the people focus. In this case, I don't have a three to five point sermon. I have a one point sermon. And the sermon is simply the kingdom of God. And so walk with me as I always do through Psalm 1914. And so dear Lord, this morning let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen? Amen. You know, the Bible tells us of two kingdoms. One is the kingdom of God, and the other is the kingdom of this world. Now, we see a glimpse of the kingdom of God in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1. God created, and it was good. The birds of the air, the, the, the fish of the sea, the stars in the sky, the animals, the plants, and of course, Adam and Eve. No suffering, no pain, no death. Perfect communion between God and man. It was shalom, perfect peace. Everything as it was meant to be, and why not? It was the garden of Eden. And this word garden was not meant to communicate a portion of soil behind one's house where you grow vegetables. This was not meant to be the flower and grass area in front of your house. This garden was to portray the beautiful botanical estate that would surround a king's palace. It identified the Garden of Eden as a place where the king dwelt. But then we read on in Genesis 3 how Satan, through the image of the serpent, deceived and tempted Adam and Eve. And their sin ushered in a fallen world and it separated mankind from God. And this world and all of mankind was now set against the kingdom of God. 
But God still sat on his heavenly throne as the sovereign king of all things. But in John 12, 31, we read, how Satan was now allowed to become the ruler of this world. This did not mean that that God was not in control. In God's infinite wisdom, Satan was allowed to rule this world within the boundaries that God allows. And throughout the New Testament, we see this struggle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4 states that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And those who do not believe are described as being, 2 Timothy 2.26, in the snare of the devil. 1 John 5.19, in the power of the evil one. And Ephesians 2.2, in the bondage to Satan. But you know, Satan does not rule over all mankind. Colossians 1.13 tells us, that God has delivered all believers from the domain of darkness and transferred them to the kingdom of his beloved Son. There is a choice, and it must be made by each person regardless of who they are or where they're from. James writes in James 4.4, Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And 1 John 2 then tells us in verses 15 and 16, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. There is a battle that is being waged. And you see the results in the news all the time. And you even feel the effects of it in your hearts. In this world, we see the struggle between truth versus deceit, generosity versus greed, peace versus war, faith versus doubt, love versus hate, contentment versus covetousness, humility versus pride, and holiness versus sin. We see its results. But the true battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world is happening on a spiritual level. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. And in Ephesians 6, 11 through 13, he states, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over their present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Amen? The kingdom of this world seems to have the upper hand. You know, all seems to be lost, but in Romans 8, 20 and 21, we see that God had a purpose for it all. Listen to this text, Romans 8, 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Listen, this world was subjected to futility. It was subjected to brokenness and hopelessness. And who brought that to pass? Most would say, Satan. 
But this verse says that the reason that creation was subjected to futility was hope. Satan does not bring hope. God brings hope. God brings hope. And again, listen to the verses of Romans 8, 20 and 21. Creation was subjected to futility in hope that creation would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, God allow, allowed and still allows creation to suffer under the rule and the ruler of the kingdom of this world so that we will turn from our sin and be saved, that we will turn away from trusting in the world and trusting in ourselves, and we will turn away from trusting anything with this world. We have to realize that it is only as we trust God we can find hope because there is no manner of saving ourselves. So even when we're surrounded with the brokenness of this world and the brokenness within, that is not enough to allow you to then have the ability to escape the corruption of this world on your own. Obviously, this world has been consumed by spiritual darkness under the oppression of Satan, and that has happened since the sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. And that is the picture that is presented in the scriptures. And then Galatians 4.4 4 proclaims, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, Jesus, the rightful king had come to take back that which was rightfully his. And in Mark 1, 14 and 15, we read Jesus' first sermon, where immediately he begins to proclaim, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. Again, Jesus came to reclaim the kingdom. Jesus was coming to take back that which was his. You know, many times this idea of the kingdom of God is lost amongst so many other doctrines and teachings in Scripture. But it was not like this for Jesus. In Luke 4.43, Jesus even says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. As a result... In Jesus' life and ministry, we see the kingdom of God at work. And through his teaching, his compassion, his love, his miracles, his selflessness, his grace, his truth, and his sacrifice, we see the king beginning to model for us what it looks like when the kingdom of God comes. What it looks like when the kingdom of God enters into a relationship. What it looks like when the kingdom of God enters into a conversation. What it should look like when the kingdom of God comes into contact with the kingdom of this world. In the final days before Jesus' crucifixion, when speaking to the disciples to encourage them, Jesus said in John 14, 30 and 31, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Earlier in John 12, 31, he said, during the same week, he spoke these words, now is the judgment of this world. 
Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. But at the crucifixion, it appeared that Satan had won and that Christ had been defeated. But in reality, on Sunday, when the tomb was opened and Jesus was raised from the dead, it proved that sin had been paid for and that the kingdom of God was at hand. And although the final victory had not yet come, the tide had turned in the battle. Satan had been dealt a mortal wound, and nothing would prevail against the coming of the kingdom of God. But how? How does the kingdom of God come into our lives and into our world? And that is where we now are going to turn our attention. Listen. As we seek to understand the concept of the kingdom of God, it would help us to consider Matthew 6. And that's where we find the portion of scripture that we know as the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew 6.10, we find these familiar words. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This verse is best understood when we recognize its use of a literary tool, which is called synonymous parallelism. And this writing style was often used in scripture. In this literary tool, the first phrase of a verse states an idea. The second phrase restates the same idea using different words. And in that way, the writer helps us to understand what he meant when he was writing the first phrase. And we see this style in, for example, Psalm 46, 1. First phrase, God is our refuge and strength. Second phrase, a very present help in trouble. See, the second phrase clarifies the first phrase. Another example, Psalm 23, 1. First phrase, the Lord is my shepherd. Second phrase, I shall not want. In other words, a shepherd takes care of the sheep. So once we recognized, recognize the parallelism in Matthew 6.10, we understand the definition of the kingdom of God. Listen, first phrase, your kingdom Come. Second phrase, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, we will know that the kingdom of God has fully come on earth when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. But how is God's will done in heaven? Psalm 103, 19 tells us, that the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. In heaven, all is lived under the rule of God in obedience to God for the glory of God. So that is our goal, our prayer, our deepest longing that God would have complete dominion over this world as he does in heaven. And the word translated kingdom in the Greek was the word basilia. This word meant the realm in which the sovereign king rules. And in days past, the king's realm might have included a certain geographical region, a certain ethnicity of people, 
or a certain group of cities that may be under his control. But God's kingdom is different. It is a spiritual kingdom. It is not seen with the eye or touched with the hand. Listen, it is determined by the heart. If one is not living under the rule of God, then God is not their king. And thus they are not part of the kingdom. The kingdom is of God is made up of all who have willingly submitted their hearts and lives to God as their king. And as clearly as as Jesus said in Mark 1, 14 and 15 again, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Again, if God through Christ is not their king, then they're not part of the kingdom of God. And also that this is a spiritual kingdom is evident in various scriptures in the Bible. In John 18, 36, Jesus asked, was asked by Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responded, my kingdom is not of this world. In John 3, 5 to 7, Jesus describes the entrance into the kingdom as being born again. Romans 14, 17 states that the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 tells us that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because God is not their king. Now let's stop for just a minute and talk about the idea of king. In the modern world, the understanding of king has changed greatly. Today, with the exception of Saudi Arabia, you have kings who are little more than figureheads. They attend state functions and they say hello and shake hands with representatives of other countries, but they have no real role in the governance of the nation. They are completely different than the roles of the kings in biblical times. Even Saudi Arabia is not as powerful. And in those times, there was a covenant between the king and those in his kingdom. The king was to be the protector, the provider, the leader, and the guide of all who lived in his kingdom. He was to care for his people. But in return, they were to give undying allegiance to him, to obey his command, to often yield what they had for the furtherance of his goals and his agenda. The king would own and completely rule over everything and everyone in his kingdom with no accountability. For those who had great kings like King David, it was a pleasure to be part of their kingdom. But for those who lived under the rule of the bad kings, it would be a nightmare. It's kind of like the stark contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. So citizenship, citizenship in heaven, citizenship in the kingdom of God, is given to all who submit their hearts to this God as their king. Again, the kingdom of God is not a geographical kingdom or a political kingdom. And that's why the Jews did not understand or recognize what Jesus was. They were looking for a kingdom that would free them from the Romans. That's not the reason Jesus had come. He was bringing a spiritual, eternal kingdom. And when he was surrounded and being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus responded in Luke 17, 20 and 21. 
The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For the behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In Christ, the kingdom of God had come near, and Jesus came ushering in the kingdom of God into our world and into our lives. Listen, Jesus living in their midst gave them and us an example of what kingdom life looks like. For example, his life was fully lived under the rule of the Father. The Father's will was done completely in Jesus' life. He was tempted, but he never sinned. In John 5, 19, Jesus declared, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Now, I want you to consider Luke twenty-two forty-two, Because here, the greatest picture of this is when Jesus wrestled in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew his arrest, torture, and crucifixion was near. And in desperation, he prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The kingdom of God had come so completely in the life of Christ that even in desperation, his deepest longing was still that God's will would be done. That is kingdom living. That is what kingdom living is to look like in our lives. And we become citizens of the kingdom of God when we turn to Christ through faith and repentance. But the fullness of the kingdom of God is to grow day by day in the life of every believer. And that is the idea behind the words, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Remember, God's will is done completely in heaven. And that should be the goal of our lives. That's the kingdom of, our goal should be that the kingdom of God would take such a radical hold of us that every part of our lives would be subject to God as king. I know we often find ourselves in situations where kingdom living just seems impossible. But nothing is impossible for God. See, those who have entered the kingdom of God, Galatians 4, 3 to 9 states, those have been freed from their bondage of sin which had bound them to this world. And then Philippians 2, 13 states, that God now works in us to will and to act according to his purpose. You know, as a member of God's kingdom, God's will is to be our constant pursuit, that God would continue to take lordship over more and more of our lives, that we would walk by faith and experience continually the blessing of, of, of God. And lastly, another way to think about God's kingdom should be that we have been called to be more than just citizens of the kingdom. We are to be ambassadors for our king. This world is not our home. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Simply put, 
We are to herald the coming of the king. We are to urge others to submit to the rule of Christ in their lives. We are to announce the kingdom in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, and in our homes. And we must realize that being an ambassador for Christ is difficult work. Matthew 7, 13 and 14 describes it in these words. Verse 13, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. Verse 13, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. But now listen, it's not hard as in difficult or complicated. Coming into the kingdom of God simply requires one to turn from his sin and put his faith in Jesus Christ. But it is hard because people do not want to repent and humble themselves under the rule of God. They do not want to give up lordship over their lives. They do not want to turn away from the pleasures of this world. As John 3.19 states that they would rather live in the darkness than the light. Many would rather cling to their sinful identities than being born again and made new in Christ, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 declares. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. But still, as children of God, children of the King, we are to reclaim the world for the kingdom of God. And that kingdom of God would grow in our lives, should grow in our lives to the point that others would see him in us and as a result be drawn to the kingdom as well. We presently are surrounded by the kingdom of this world. We have become very familiar with fear, frustration, discontentment, insecurity, anxiety, greed, jealousy, pride, and everything that results from them. We should not be surprised that following Jesus is not popular or trendy. We are in an, what I view as enemy territory. We are preparing for a spiritual revolution. We're swimming against the current that the world that we're facing in the world. We are lights. We have been called to drive back the darkness while inviting others into his marvelous light. Our lives, our homes, our churches, our outposts, lighthouses for the kingdom of God. But now, in the midst of the darkness of this world, we add one light at a time, one disciple at a time, one church at a time, and it seems overwhelming. But if we keep our eyes on the horizon, our individual lights may seem inconsequential. But there will be a day when Christ will return like a sunrise. And in an instant, his overwhelming, undeniable light will chase away every hint of darkness in this world. And he will no longer be out of the view. Christ will show himself clearly. See, the kingdom of God that governs our lives will then take complete dominion over this world. As Daniel prophesied in Daniel 2.44, the, the 
The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And as John writes in Revelation 19, 11 to 16, Jesus will come as a conquering king, riding a white horse, eyes blazing like fire, wearing a crown upon his head and leading the armies of heaven. And on his robe and on his thigh, he will bear the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then Philippians 2.10 and 11 states, And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And as we are told in Revelation 11.15, the seventh angel will blow a trumpet and the loud voices of heaven will proclaim the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And 1 Corinthians 24, 15, 24 tells us, then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father. After destroying every rule and every authority and power, as it is written in Revelation 21, 3 to 5, the dwelling place of God will be man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Behold, he will make all things new. That will be the climax of the story. As this darkness is done away with by the holy light of Christ, he's going to shine into every corner and every crevice of this world. Consider that we as children of the king, we have an advantage. And although the world is a dark place and it sometimes feels as though our individual lights aren't making much of a difference, we know how the story ends. And so let us not become weary in doing good for the, at the proper time. The Son, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ will come and return and the kingdom will be ours. Amen. But as a praise team, they would come and offer us one last song as a closing song. Did I get my notes right? Again, I say please stand, but we are concerned with the position of your heart that we raise this in worship in a heartfelt manner to our King. Amen.
harder as the time goes on to climb those steps. Amen. Well, service is over, and in the coming days, I would just ask that you consider and reflect on the message so that you can get the full extent or the full impact that was intended. My words for you is to get involved in ministry. Then you go forth and proclaim that to the world. Amen. Amen. See you all next week.